join me as I open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are able to be together this morning to study your word and to fellowship with your people. Pray, Lord, for our sister LaRue, who's in the hospital this morning, that you would continue to work and heal her. And I pray for our sister Shirley, who's also ill this morning, that you would restore her to health. And Lord, there are many others in our midst who are sick or who have had health issues and that we didn't name. But you know every name, you know every face, you know every condition. And we pray for the restoration of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We also pray, Lord, that you will help us to have a heart to support all of the missionaries of our church all over the world. Lord, I mentioned this morning Minnow and Annette Kalisher, but Lord, we have missionaries serving faithfully in many places who also are enduring hardships. I pray that you would impress upon my heart a greater desire to focus on praying for those carrying the gospel in dark places, and I pray for each one of us to have that awareness. And Lord, as I transition into First Peter, I pray that you would help calm my heart. I get excited talking about things, and I'm excited about Israel, and yet, Lord, as we're here this morning, the focus is going to be on your word. Lord, you have a lot to teach us. I pray that you would help me to be clear, help me to present truth. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us in the room would have ears to hear so that we could apply it in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, several weeks since I actually taught in first Peter, and as I mentioned to you, we're covering this morning material in 1 Peter chapter 2 that begins at verse 18. And as we are getting into this, I want to provide a little bit of a context for where we've been prior to this, because it has been a while since I taught, I think almost a month since I've actually been in 1 Peter. Prior to the text this morning, we spent several weeks when I was teaching on it, covering verses 13 to 17, dealing with submission to the government and an overarching sort of philosophy or interacting with other people, but a big focus was on submission. And the reality is what Peter had started doing at verse 13 is applying previously taught truths in a very concrete way. As Peter introduced his book, he was reiterating, and he did reiterate, a lot of truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of truths about our salvation. And these were truths that were timely for a persecuted and suffering people. There were a lot of very real hardships being endured by the believers to whom Peter was writing. And so he was encouraging them in the midst of these difficulties. I'm aware of your difficulties. Let me remind you of the spiritual status you have because the hope in times of trial is never us. It's always what we have in Christ. This was the hope for them to endure, but Peter wasn't just saying, hang on and endure. He's also pointing them forward for how they should live. The trials weren't to be an excuse for laziness or for sin, Rather, the trials were to be the proving grounds of faith so that the believers could live out their lives in their daily, ordinary existence in such a way that it was evangelistic. Other people would see and realize your lives are different. 
He wanted them to have the right mindset, the right heart attitudes, and of course, the right lifestyle is overarching point. Be holy as God is holy. But he wants to also show them what that looks like. In the church, it looks like fervent love for one another, always loving our brothers and sisters fervently. It requires a dependence on God and His Word to resist the pulls of the flesh. It requires us to always recognize that we are built up individuals uniquely created as part of God's eternal purposes. We have a place in His kingdom. He used imagery of building stones. Each one of us carefully and uniquely created to fit into what He has done. And that really summarizes, obviously in a very, very cursory fashion... 1 Peter chapter 1 through 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. And then in verse 13, Peter got into and began to get into the practical working out of all of this truth. In fact, I'll be honest with you. When I was thinking about teaching 1 Peter, what we're dealing with now is what came to my mind. In other words, I couldn't wait to get into what we're going to see that we saw starting at verse 13, what we're going to see today, and I'm excited about what's coming. Because the next verses after this are very exciting to me, and then you turn the corner and we're into marriage and all bets are off. Husbands and wives and what we're supposed to do. But again, Christianity isn't just about doing There's a theological component. There's a theological foundation. We're doing because of Christ, not just to be doing. Pharisees were very good at doing. We're not trying to be Pharisees. Peter isn't writing a treatise to show us how to be Pharisees. But at verse 13, as Peter bears in on an issue that affects every person living on the earth, how do you interact with human governments? Let me read, just as a reminder, verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We went through this in great detail. We even had a Sunday to ask questions about this. This is very hard teaching because it says no matter where you are and where we are, we have to submit to our government. Unless the government asks you to sin, you submit. And it's not just... In behavior, that's important. It's also in attitude. In fact, if we are submitting to our government according to God's word, it becomes evangelistic because unbelievers are watching us. And if their image of us is all negative because we're out storming the gates and burning down Congress and we're always angry and frustrated and rebelling, that's not a very winsome picture. In fact, it's not a Christian picture at all. Because according to the scriptures, we are to submit no matter what. God's given us great freedom. He didn't give us freedom so that we can go and sin and do whatever we want. He gave us freedom so that we can submit ourselves to His will. And one of the areas of submission to God's will is submission to the government. That's very hard. We all know it. It's a little bit easier when your candidate wins. As I shared with you, I lived in California. My candidate never won. I can just guarantee you, I could have made a lot of money predicting the elections. Whoever I want to vote for, they lose. But here's the point. It didn't matter. I had to submit to the government in California. 
even though in my political persuasion they were outside the boundaries, they were off the charts, they were out and doing all kinds of crazy things, according to Scripture, I still submit. That's our duty always. We're supposed to be people living at peace. Christians are not supposed to be the people with torches and pitchforks burning down buildings. We're supposed to be setting an example of peace. Honor all people, not just the people that we like or that we agree with. Certainly we love every Christian, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. So, this duty of submission that Peter was telling us about, if you thought about the teaching when I was going through it, if you think about it now, it's very hard. It's not easy. Because we have built into us a sense of justice of that's not right, that's not fair, that's not good. And from a Christian perspective, it adds to it, that's unbiblical, that's ungodly, that's unholy. But as I shared with you, when Peter wrote this, the leader over the people was Nero. A man whose wickedness makes anybody that we have on radar pale by comparison. And yet Peter didn't hesitate to say, submit. Now, I think submitting to the government's hard. What I'm about to say this morning is un-American. So I'll just go ahead and prop it up front. It's biblical. And it's God's truth, but it runs contrary to what Americans think. So, because I'm amongst brothers and sisters and none of you will shoot me right now, (laughs) I'm going to dive in. So follow along with me as I read verses 18 to 20. This section actually goes longer, and when we carry into it, you're going to see that I'm going to read back to this, and it's going to make a lot of sense. But for this morning, everything we need to know for this portion of Scripture is in verses 18 to 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now I'm going to explain this, and I pray that I'm explaining it in an appropriate way, but I'm going to tell you the application of this up front because my outline is based on the application. Certainly it's based on the truth that's being taught, and I think I can make the case as to why the application is accurate, but the way I've broken this down is a simple two-part outline. I'm going to get through all this material today if I talk fast. I can already tell you we won't have time to pray now that I look at my notes and where we are. But it's two biblical principles for the modern workplace. Two biblical principles for the modern workplace. And I realize some people in our midst are retired. Don't dismiss all of that. For some of you, maybe it'll be things that God will bring to your mind that you need to repent of that you did in the past. But for others, it may be that you have an opportunity to give counsel to young people that aren't retired, but they're on the front end of a career. And maybe you have the ability to speak truth into their lives when the time comes as God gives you opportunity. 
So two biblical principles for the modern workplace. The first is this. Submission to your employer is not optional or conditional. Submission to your employer is not optional or conditional. Now, I'm going to have to pause there and step out of the modern world, and I'm going to go back into what is this text talking about originally. Servants, verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. We first have to deal with the reality of what was being talked about. And in this context, the original recipients, this was talking about the institution of slavery. This was talking about a different economic system than we currently have, but it's not as different perhaps as we think it is. Reading through various commentaries, which helps provide some historical context, the word used for servants here is a different word than is quite often used for slave. In fact, many people would say it probably was dealing more specifically with household help. Household servants. Now, it still was dealing with slavery in the sense of somebody was owned, they didn't have freedom. But it was a little different nuance. But the fact remains, Peter is addressing servants. People who were in the business of serving a master. Now, when we talk about slavery, we necessarily have an American context. We think of the American slave system that is a blight on our history. It's an embarrassment and shame. Sadly, I hear people say, well, a lot of slavery was around. Well, a lot of sin's around too. It doesn't mean we should commend it. But our slavery was barbaric. It was horrific. And it was generally directed at a particular ethnicity, people from Africa. The legacy of which is still felt at times today. But in the time of Peter's writing of this letter... Slavery was a little bit more commonplace. Not a little bit, more commonplace. Some experts would say that in the city of Rome and other major cities, as much as half the population was slaves. That was the economic system. In fact, slaves were not just, as we have this image of slaves in the field toiling in the sun, slaves occupied a lot of the professional classes. Doctors, nurses, trained professions, teachers, musicians... Quite often those people were slaves. It wasn't uncommon for someone who was wealthy to have their children taught by a very competent, trained and learned person who was just a slave. And I read some commentaries that I think are probably accurate, but I wouldn't go as far as they would go. Slavery was not as oppressive in every circumstances as it could be. I don't buy a lot of that because you're still owned by somebody else. You still have no rights. It is true that there could be some places where people were slaves and their masters were very benevolent and they were good. That was occasionally the case. But the fact remains, there were very bad masters as well. So Peter references servants and masters, but he's really directing his truth to the servants. It's a fact that a lot of the early church were slaves. Now, in Christ, we're taken out of that, Galatians 3.28. Now, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, because Christ breaks down the walls. 
But contrary to what some people say, there's nothing in the New Testament that talks about a revolution of society in the sense of let's overthrow slavery, let's overthrow this, let's overthrow that. No, the Bible takes people where they were. You come to faith as a slave, let me give you some direction of how you live your life. In fact, I read some people saying that if you look at the text, Peter may be even elevating the status of slaves because he addressed their unique issues at the beginning of some of his teaching. But here's the bottom line. Peter is addressing a text to people who had the occupation of master and servant. Again, we don't have slavery today. Our constitution outlaws slavery. But many experts across many disciplines make it clear the closest analogy today is the employer-employee relationship. Now, it's not a secret that I used to be a lawyer. I dust off my memory from law school, which was a long time ago. And it's interesting because I practiced employment law. That's what I did. So I happened to deal with employment law. This is, I mean, this is right up my alley. I pull my soapbox out. I know this soapbox. But if you look at the ancient legal treatises, how they referred to employer-employee was master-servant. That was the legal textbooks. In other words, the point is, this relationship was so analogous that even secular unbelievers over centuries, starting in Europe and then eventually transporting it to the legal system here, recognized that that's probably the best understanding. So secular terms don't define Scripture, but in the context of what I'm saying, I believe it's an appropriate application to us When we see servant to think employee, and where we see master, we think employer or boss. So, know what I'm telling you. Peter was originally writing to slaves who served masters, but it has applicability to employees who serve employers, bosses. So let's look again at the language of verse 18. Servants. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now that's the overarching command. The way this is phrased, this is clearly to be read as an imperative, meaning this is a duty. And just like submission to the government, this isn't saying when your employer makes you submissive, go along with it. This is saying you make yourself submissive from the start. It's your responsibility, Christian, to make yourself submissive to your employer. And it's not just behavior. It's attitude with all respect. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. It means your heart attitude. The best idea to help me as I was thinking through these various things is to remember God is always watching. We do everything in reverent respect, fear of Him and if He tells us to be submissive to our earthly masters our earthly employers, our earthly bosses, we do it because of ultimately because of the fear of the God who controls us. The point is Applicationally, for believers, we are supposed to submit both in our actions, following orders, taking direction, 
and in our attitude, being willing to do it no matter what. Now, this is where I say I'm getting close to being un-American. For example, if you walk around all day at work doing everything you've been asked to do, but complaining every step of the way, grumbling, what a fool, why are we doing this? You resent it, you're just stirring dissension, you're talking over the water cooler at lunch. Can't believe it, I told them a hundred times, don't do this. You are being disobedient to God's command, but in America, you're just being a regular employee. That's your birthright, is to complain. Unless you own the company, you're supposed to complain, right? That's what we do as Americans. I think at times we think it's our constitutional right to complain and moan about our jobs. That's what we do. To be upset with the boss, talk behind his back, undermine his authority, her authority. But if Peter was approaching un-American thinking, he's going to cross right over the border now. Because he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. God, through Peter, puts us in a box and makes things very clear but very challenging. The heart of the point that I said, being submissive to your employer, being submissive to your boss is not optional or conditional. It's not optional because we've already seen it's a command. Be submissive. Attitude and heart. But it's not conditional on whether you like your boss or whether your boss does a good job. I love how scripture gets to the heart of the things we deal with. So, for example, he understands if you've got a really good boss who's reasonable and caring and kind and cares about employees, guess what? It's not so hard to submit, is it? It's not hard at all. So he says, not only to those who are good and gentle. Sometimes, by God's grace, you're working in a great environment. And certainly you submit there. Even that's not the problem in America. It's the next part. But also to those who are unreasonable. I'm not a Greek scholar. I think the translation unreasonable, though, is very mild. The word has to do with morally crooked, perverse. It goes beyond just unreasonable which we could think of, well, they didn't make a good choice. Perverse, dishonest. Some translations translate it harsh or unjust. I think you could add all the adjectives you could think of to describe a terrible boss, and it fits here with this term that's translated unreasonable. Dishonest, asking the impossible. Stealing credit for work that employees did. Shifting blame and blaming other people for their failures. Causing dissension amongst employees by pitting them against each other. Abusing authority. Manipulating people. Being spiteful with assignments or time off. 
being angry and abusive and screaming and yelling at employees in a demeaning way, all those types of behaviors which some of you probably have experienced fit within that term of unreasonable. So how do you deal with that type of person that's making life miserable for everybody, that's screaming and hollering and dishonest and immoral? According to Peter, you submit with all respect. I try and live life with you. I try and think back through my life. I think for many of us, when we take this out of a Sunday school setting and go back into our workplaces or think about our life, we'd almost say, Peter, stop it. Be practical. Nobody can actually do this. You're going to get run over. You can't ask me to go be a doormat. Nobody's going to respect me if I don't stand up for myself, if I don't push back when I'm pushed. And I want to be very careful. This is where... When we have those moments, we have to pray that we stop thinking like Americans and start thinking more like biblical Christians. Because God's Word and the American mindset for employer-employee relations don't go hand in hand. In fact, in America, the right to complain is wired into our system. I've already alluded to that. But if you've worked in any type of workplace, you know it. Unless you work in a solo personal business, you see it. People are constantly upset. They're constantly offended. They're constantly upset. In fact, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to go over his head. In fact, I'm going to gather ten other employees and we'll put a stop to this foolishness. I am not going to deal with this kind of behavior. Here's the struggle. That doesn't seem to be consistent with what Scripture says. We have an American mindset that says if life isn't fair, then you have a right to complain. In fact, I'm not overstating it. That's enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. The right to petition the government for redress of your grievances. We have it built into the DNA of our society that the people have a right to complain. No doubt coming from the rebellion against the dictatorial and authoritarian power of a king in England. The problem is we have to fight against the DNA that would tell us to disobey God's word. Where he tells us to submit. Here's hard truth I think do you know what you call an unreasonable boss a dishonest immoral boss a horrible boss do you know what you call that a sinner do you think God knows how to help his children deal with sinners they're not a unique class of sinners they're just sinners with a little bit more power we have a variety of jobs in a variety of environments wherever Christians are, they should be seen as the very best employees. They should be. They should be the very best employees. Everybody should want Christians working for them. Now, you and I both know a lot of people in America that call themselves Christians aren't Christians and they destroy our testimony, but don't let it be you. You be the very best. You submit with all respect. 
we should be the least complaining. We should be the most compliant. But I know from my interactions over the 20 plus years I've been saved that quite often we're just like everybody else because we're weak. And we're complaining and groaning and mumbling. I think Peter is telling us to stop it. Now again, most of you know me enough, but I think sometimes, and I've heard this myself, and I don't know if I've ever thought it, maybe I have, but sometimes you think, well, it's easy for you, Pastor, to say something like that. You work at a church. In fact, I think, aren't you the guy that is the boss of the other employees? So what are you talking about? I was in the secular work world longer than I've been a pastor. I was an employee of different places. I was a lawyer and I was an employment lawyer, so I made a living off of people's conflicts in the workplace. That's what I did. I represented management. But I worked for employers. I had bosses. I took orders. I never owned my own firm. And I had some really good bosses and I had some really bad bosses. Sometimes I liked them and I thought they were wise and sometimes I thought they were asking us to march off a cliff. In fact, all I did, by and large, for the 14 plus years that I was actively practicing law was deal with employment problems. Bosses and employees, that's all I did. Part of the reason I say so confidently that yes, this happens in the workplace is because I wouldn't have had a job otherwise. I do know how hard this is. I know the battles I had with my own heart. Now, let me give the one proviso. If an employer asks you to do something illegal, you refuse respectfully. If they fire you, they fire you. I'm blessed that in all the years that I was practicing law, only once was I confronted with a situation where I thought I was being asked to do something illegal. And it's only by God's grace, not because I'm a great person, that I was able to look the boss in the eye and say no. Now, it was easier because he didn't know it, but I knew I was going to quit and go to seminary. (laughs) But I had a lot of courage that day. (laughs) No, I did count the cost because I wasn't quitting yet. I had a wife and little kids. It was God's grace that enabled me to have the judgment to say no. I'm not going to do it. But I also know, again, if that was the case, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If you're asked to do something illegal, you respectfully refuse. And if you're fired, you're fired. But short of that, just because they make bad decisions, just because they're unreasonable, just because they're all these horrible things, doesn't justify you disregarding what Peter says. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, even the bad ones. Now the second biblical principle, and I'm going to have to go quickly through this, is this. Suffering for righteous behavior can earn God's favor. Suffering for righteous behavior can earn God's favor. Here's the ultimate reason why we can do something like this. Because there's not always happy endings in the workplace. A lot of people are fired. That was the least fun thing I did 
I was a part of a lot of employee terminations. I didn't fire them. I was the one brought in to make sure they stayed fired. I prayed a lot because I don't know. Lord, I don't want to be a part of causing an honest person to lose their job. But I also don't want to be a part of a dishonest person keeping a job. It was a time of a lot of prayer. But for a believer, if you are treated unjustly, if you suffer, if you are able to follow what God says, there's a reward because you have His favor. Verse 19 and 20. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, I'm going to cover these a little bit faster than I normally do, in part because of time, but also in part because I think in this context, I can crystallize what's being said without a lot of elaboration. Sometimes the extra elaboration is helpful. In this case, this cuts right to the point. First, Peter is talking about something that we should all want. Who wants God's favor? Of course, all of us do. I can't imagine a circumstance where a Christian would answer the question, do you want God's favor? And say, no, I've had enough of that. I'm full of favor today. Just, you keep it. Somebody else can have it. No, we always want God's favor. Praise the Lord, we have it in Christ. But in terms of day-to-day life, we always want to be living according to His will. So Peter makes it clear, for this finds favor, and it's kind of a book in it, beginning of verse 19 and end of verse 20, because it's not just favor with people, it's not favor outside, this finds favor with God. So you can see the book in it's for this finds favor at the beginning of verse 19, for this finds favor with God at the end of verse 20, it all fits together. So what is it? It means when you're treated badly, if you can endure Trusting in God, you find favor with God. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now, I want to be very clear because Peter's making it clear it's not the suffering per se. It's no mistake, a lot of unbelievers suffer. If you work with an unbeliever and you've got a bad boss, guess what? You both suffer. And the fact that you can be stoic and endure it in and of itself doesn't mean anything. It's that phrase... For the sake of conscience towards God. In other words, it's when you are enduring, not because you want to prove you can't push me around. I'll take it. I'm tough. That's not commendable. What's commendable is when you say, Lord, for your sake, I'm going to do this. You have a conscious awareness of I'm doing this because of my Lord and Savior. That's when suffering becomes commendable. Again, we live in a sin-filled world. People suffer all the time. It's not the act of suffering. There's nothing commendable in the suffering. It's when a believer can process theologically his circumstances, trusting in God's sovereignty and say, Lord, if you put me under this weight, I'm going to bear it. I'm not backing down, Lord, for your sake. That finds favor. If you have a crooked, perverse boss, somebody that makes your life miserable, somebody that you causes you to not want to get up and go to work on Monday morning, they treat you wrongly, they expect unreasonable things, they make unreasonable demands, they perhaps are angry or use profanity or all kinds of offensive things. Here's the point. When you think of your responsibility to God and say, Lord, I'm just going to endure it. Give me through today, Lord. 
Help me today do my best. Lord, help me today to resist the flesh which wants to punch someone and help me honor you. That's what's commendable to God. They carry the heavy burdens of an unreasonable boss for the sake of the Lord. You have to understand in those circumstances, He hasn't left you. He's not forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He's using even that heavy weight to conform you to the image of Christ, to build you into what He wants you to be. Now, Peter has an interlude here, which is interesting because I saw this in real life, so I'm going to allude to that. But I think it's interesting in verse 20, he says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? I think Peter sees something about our human nature. We can always justify anything. And it appears that there must have been some people that were misbehaving, suffering consequences for their misbehavior and saying, I'm enduring for the Lord. Suffering for Jesus. He's saying, wait a minute, if you've you've been a bad employee, you take your lumps. If you've been a bad employee, what, what you expect a pat on the back because you patiently endured it? You know, I've seen this in experience. One of the things I did, I investigated cases. So over the years, I investigated dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of cases. So sometimes I get the various things mixed up in my mind. So I'm going to share with you the gist of something that I believe is accurate, but I couldn't point to a date or time because I had so many issues that went through my mind. But any time... In the midst of employee disputes, somebody raised the Christianity or said, this is religious persecution, my ears went up. Obviously, I care about that. I'm a believer. And I didn't walk into a room with a Bible. I was hired to be a lawyer, but you don't leave your Christianity there. I had compassion for people. And I remember something along these lines... And it was a situation, and what Peter's in essence saying, don't act like a martyr if you just misbehaved and you're being held accountable. But I remember circumstances where a Christian wanted to read his Bible or her Bible, I'll say him just for the sake, but I don't remember. They wanted to read their Bible at their desk at work, and their boss said no. And they said, I'm being persecuted, being discriminated against. Well, guess what? Wouldn't that, I mean, what do you initially say? Oh, that's terrible. But given the nature of what I did, you look into it a little bit, that wasn't the full picture. They were wanting to read their Bible at work when they were on the clock and they were supposed to be working. So they literally were walking around, you know, carrying a cross, I'm bearing the burdens. No, you're just being lazy. Sure, you can read your Bible at break time. You can read your Bible at lunch. Nobody was stopping that. But this person was saying, I'm suffering for the Lord. No, you weren't. You weren't doing your job. Believe it or not, that can apply to witnessing or other things. When you're at work, you're supposed to work. That doesn't mean you can't have interaction. Certainly, even how we perform our jobs is an evangelistic testimony. And there were occasions over the years, even as a lawyer, on quiet times, somebody might come to me and say, hey, I'm a believer. You know, things are different on your own. But guess what? When you're hired to work, you work. And if you don't work, you can't hide behind Christianity. And that's what Peter's saying. Look, if you're just not a good employee... Don't pretend like there's something commendable because you're being punished for your bad employment. 
He makes it clear. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. As long as we are on this earth, we're going to have bad employers and bad bosses. Not always. Praise the Lord if you've got a good one. Praise the Lord if you work for a Christian who's fair and honest and good. But the fact remains, we live in a sin-filled world, which means you're going to deal with sinners who have authority over you. And the way to deal with that is to go to the Scriptures. Submit. Submit. With all respect. Now next week, when I get into the next verses, I'm going to address some of the objections that are already in your mind that you're thinking, but. Because next week we're going to see that the example in all of that is Jesus. And we're going to think hard about what He did. Such that, before you get too mad at me, saying you don't really understand... I'll just say, let's see if Jesus understands. So come back next week. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, at times it's easy for me to teach, and yet I know the struggle that I've had at various points in my life and living out the truths that I'm proclaiming confidently. The confidence isn't because of me, Lord. It's because I know this is your word and this is what you are commanding. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are still employed who have to live these things out pray that you would give us strength to do the impossible I thank you for my faithful brothers and sisters who have already been living out this truth who have been responding with submissiveness even in the face of oppression Lord for those brothers and sisters I pray that this morning's lesson would be encouragement because they can understand and have hope that this finds favor with you And Lord, if there are some brothers and sisters here who have not been living this out, who have been unsubmissive, who have been rebellious, pray that you would soften their hearts and help them conform their behavior to Scripture. Lord, I recognize that there are so many nuances to truth like this. Every workplace is unique. Every authority structure is unique. Lord, there are different rules and regulations and processes in so many different employment contexts such that I realize the overview that I've done this morning can't address every nuance, but Lord, it shows the heart. So I pray that you would help each one of us evaluate our hearts. Lord, if people need guidance of how to live this out, I pray that we could turn to one another. I pray that you give us wisdom to help But Lord, I pray that you would give us submissive hearts. And I look ahead, Lord, I know what's coming next. The example of Jesus looms large. And I pray, Lord, that as we see and remember what he's done, it transforms what we think is possible in our own lives. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.